Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current, legal, and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. To all our listeners out there, welcome, and thank you for your continuing interest in our podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Drew Schulte, a counsel in our intellectual property practice. Drew specializes in optimizing his clients' intellectual property portfolios for their specific needs, whether they include generating licensing revenue, securing additional rounds of investor funding, or gaining a competitive edge. Drew strives to recommend global solutions while navigating the nuances of specific jurisdictions. Drew, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. The headlines for the economy the past few months have focused on closings and reopenings, as well as loans and grants under different federal stimulus packages. We've also seen a number of restructurings and assorted bankruptcies, although not the deluge that some expected. But today, we'd like to turn our attention to alternate sources of revenue and liquidity that don't rely on the government. So, Drew, what can you tell us about intellectual property and patents as a solution for companies that have those assets? Well, I think that intellectual property and whether you're talking about uh, selling your IP that you already have or adopting strategies for managing the development of that IP is one way that companies can really look at to solve some of those liquidity uh, issues without having to to reach out for additional government sources. Uh, So when I'm speaking about IP as an intellectual property, I'm talking about the actual, say, government rights. So this would be granted in the form of patents, trademarks, copyrights, or or even trade secrets, uh, as opposed to just technology in general, which would be more like the algorithms you use, the data, the the ideas, the current progress and projects that your team may be developing. Uh, Today's discussion will really focus on patents, uh, mainly because patents are, I think, a little bit harder to conceptualize. They're a little bit more difficult to figure out how to use. And when you're talking about executive level decision makers, I think the patent portfolio is something that they really look at and say, this is, this is costing us a lot. What can we do with this? Why do we have it? So, so Drew, it sounds like there's a, both a cost element to this uh, and possible cost reduction strategies, as well as a revenue element uh, and revenue generating strategies. That's correct. Uh, so when, you, when you're talking about patents, Um, Normally, how the patenting process will work is you will have your inventors, your engineers, and they will create, uh, come up with some kind of idea. This might be an idea that they're just working on in their research and development. Uh, It might be a new product that they're coming out with that has some kind of key technology or key changes. And you'll take the, the information about that new product or about that research and you'll draft a patent on it or a patent application. And that patent application will cover all the ins and outs of the the new product, how it functions, uh, the benefits it achieves. And you'll file that with uh, a the U.S. Patent Office. And to just a quick side note that each different um, jurisdiction, so the U.S., China, Japan, all of these places have their separate um, uh, patent offices because patents are have a territorial aspect. And there's usually an initial upfront cost of... Uh, paying for the actual drafting of the application. There's going to be the cost of one prosecuting it through any given patent office. So this is when you send it to the patent office, 
they'll take a look and say, okay, this is patentable, give you the patent, or they may say, no, we have other things, other reasons why this is not patentable, in which case you're going to have your attorney uh, either argue back or amend your patent application. So that's there's some cost generated there as well, uh, but there's also just what's called maintenance or annuity fees. Uh, so these are your two large areas of um, of costs that are going to arise during, say, your patent prosecution. Uh, a third cost, which is you know also tangential to this, is when you're trying to go in multiple jurisdictions. Well, it's going to require you to file separate patent applications in each of those jurisdictions. And while some of the arguments, the amendments, that initial draft of the application, all of those may be the same, you're still going to get this you know, almost exponential increase in costs as you're pursuing the application in multiple jurisdictions. Now, what kind of compounds this even more is most companies, you know, they come out with numerous products. And in most companies, they have research and development that's constantly ongoing. So what that means is they're filing multiple patents. And so part of when you're talking about, you know, what does my portfolio look like? You're talking about all of these different patents and patent applications that you have pending across the world. And that's when I think companies really start to see the cost impact. Really being able to tailor your given approach to that business goal that you have is the way to make sure that you can cultivate your portfolio in the most cost-effective and uh, most useful way for you. So I think the, the kind of next discussion is once you've got an idea of how each of these patents cost, and then you start looking at your portfolio at large, well, what do you want to get out of this patent portfolio? And based on that, you can start to you know, cultivate and trim your cost into to something that's a lot more manageable. It sounds like a company doesn't necessarily have to protect that patent in every corner of the world, depending on what its use is and, and what its business is. When you're looking at a given jurisdiction, uh, there's a lot of, I think, key factors that you know, people really need to take a hard look at. The first is really the size of the jurisdiction. The United States is a large jurisdiction you'll want to go into. Uh, Europe is also a large jurisdiction that most companies want to go into. And then you start to look at the rest of uh, the world's GDP countries, and you've got countries like China, Japan, India, Brazil. Most companies, after they decide, well, let's look at the size, they also need to take into account the legal climate in each of those different jurisdictions. And what I mean by legal climate is, one, how strong is IP there? And two, if you ever do need to enforce your IP, so actually sue someone for infringement of your patent, you know, how large are the damages you're going to be able to uh, achieve? But other countries, you know, it, it's, a, it's more of an unknown. There's a lot of other factors that you really need to look into to figure out, you know, whether or not this is a, an appropriate legal climate for, uh, for pursuing IP. And so what are some of these um, other kind of rationales that companies might want to look at? Well, I think one is the company needs to look at its own capabilities. So there's not, there's not going to be a need to build up a huge Japanese patent portfolio if one, your company you know, doesn't plan to go into Japan, uh, two, you're in a technology that's rapidly changing and, and the patents may not be you know, useful for a long term. But three, does the company even have the infrastructure uh, to actually research, figure out if someone is infringing their product, uh, and then to go and 
um, try to, to enforce those. An additional factor might be just your local industry. So if you're talking about an industry that's very uh, big in Australia, you may wish to have some IP in Australia, even if it's not the largest jurisdiction um, out there. But these, each of these different individual considerations are something businesses should really look at when they're deciding whether or not um, to pursue IP in a given jurisdiction and where to uh, per pursue their uh, IP overall. If we could turn now towards monetization strategies for ways that companies can generate liquidity or revenue. So I think the, the first point is to make with regards to IP, most people will think uh, traditional uses are to protect market share or to defend against potential litigation by having a defensive portfolio. But there's additional ways that you can really start to use your IP assets to start generating revenue uh, immediately. And one of those, and probably the most, uh, the most um, uh, popular, is really to start a licensing program. That means you're going to take your portfolio, you're going to look to see who is using your IP or wants to use your IP, and reach out to them and try to get an IP license from them. So for that, you're typically going to need to, one, know what is in your portfolio, uh, do a review of your patents, uh, make sure that they are um, litigation quality assets in case the licensing doesn't go well. Uh, but you'll also need to start finding who is likely to need an IP license and, and reach out to them. Now, another way that you might uh, use IP to start generating revenue in a non-licensing ways through different types of corporate strategies. Now these corporate strategies might include things such as uh, creating a IP holding company. So you can put all of your high IP in a given um, uh, company. This could be perhaps uh, in a more tax-friendly jurisdiction. Uh, if you're in the US and you've got a large patent portfolio, you could have an IP uh, holding company located abroad you'll be paying licensing fees to that IP holding company. And as those, as those licensing fees are not brought back into the US, you'll, you can defer your, your tax burden on those. Uh, another way is looking at given jurisdictions have some preferable treatment for homegrown inventions. For example, in the United Kingdom, they have what's called the UK Patent Box Program. You can get a reduction of your taxes on any kind of profits if those uh, profits were derived from an invention that is patented in the UK that was created or derived or invented in the UK. Uh, another way is to just simply use your current IP to raise capital. You may put up your IP uh, as collateral for a loan or a round of financing uh, in that respect. I'd, I'd like to also point out a, another way that you might be able to use your IP is in charitable contributions. Once again, in a way to perhaps defer some of your tax liability is taking, as opposed to using an IP holding company, uh, you can donate your IP into a charitable organization. One last topic, Drew, uh, if you could touch upon it is the use of what are called unripened assets uh, that a company might have. And if you could explain what that means as well. Right, so now what I've termed as unripened assets, uh, these are really assets that may be pending patent applications, but even 
uh, non, say, patented products, say, for example, research and development that may or may not have any type of patenting protection. Now, before uh, there was the immediate cash crunches, I think most companies would shy away from trying to monetize these unripened assets because it's, it's more difficult. Uh, the reason for that is one, you would have to take maybe a, a project or a group that you that your company's been working on, trying to bring a product to market. You realize you just may not be able to do it with the given funds. You might want to try to sell that whole division. Obviously, the the buyers for that might be a competitor. I, I, there are other options. Say, for example, joining a joint venture or trying to donate some of your um, your current pending applications to things called patent pools, other ways to try to bring value out of those. And while the, the actual corporate structures and arrangements and agreements might be a little bit more complicated, uh, it is something that I think cash strap companies, particularly in today's current climate, should really start to look at as a way to bring immediate revenue in the door and to drive value out of something they might otherwise uh, be totally abandoning. Drew, you've outlined some really great IP strategies for cutting costs and generating revenues. Thank you for joining us today. Great. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. And now it's time for This Week in History. I'm torn between the birthday of an actor who changed the world for multiple generations of kids and their parents, the formation of a band that did the same, and a couple of women who led the way to changing an entire country. Actually, the third one is my real choice, but let me tell you about all three. First, on July 23, 1989, Daniel Radcliffe was born. What would our world be like without him as Harry Potter? Also on July 23rd, but in 2010, the boy band One Direction was formed on the TV show The X Factor. They became a global sensation, and now we have Harry Styles at the top of the music charts as a solo artist. I also have to sneak in that July 23rd happens to be my first daughter's birthday. But the real winner happened on July 19th, 1848, when America saw its first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York organized by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott. These two awesome women paved the way for the nation's suffragette movement. And although it took another 72 years before American women gained the right to vote, we owe a debt of gratitude to Stanton and Mott for defying the odds and the many contrary voices around them. To all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast. <laughs>